Welcome to Leonard Lopez and Large. I'm Leonard Lopez. The antebellum period in American history is generally considered to be the years between the War of 1812 and, and the Civil War. What was it like, what was life like for the black people who lived through the country's transition from a slave nation to a free country? In her new book, Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation, Anna Maidwine tells the story of two extraordinary black men with divergent worldviews, James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett, who met in the Mulberry Street New York African Free School and went on to pave the way for future generations. Anna Mae Duane is an assistant professor of English and the director of the American Studies Program at the University of Connecticut. I'm very pleased to welcome her to our show now. Hello. Hi, Leonard. Thanks for having me. You start your book at the uh, uh, New York uh, African Free School in 1822. Wasn't slavery still legal in New York at that time? It was. Uh, it was not to be formally abolished until 1827, um, and and actually the school itself was founded as early as 1787. By um, John Jay, who had started the Manumission Society uh, yes. as, as part of his mission to abolish slavery in New York State. Uh, what, what does Manumission mean? Right, and that's this um, really interesting um, question that's developing from the 1780s to the 1830s. Uh, manumission is another word for abolition in some ways, but it's gradual. Uh, so in New York, the way that slavery became illegal was through children. Um, they passed a law in 1799 uh, that would make slavery illegal, but not for 27 years. Mm -hmm. uh, you were born into slavery still, and you were supposed to age out of it. Uh, there was this idea. Um, I mean, it did a couple of things. One was that it just sort of kicked the can down the road. Um, but the second part of it is sort of coming out of this enlightenment idea that freedom is something you needed to be educated for, that you needed to develop the reason to take on the burdens of citizenship. And it was in that spirit that the school was created by, yes, uh, John Jay, and even Alexander Hamilton's hand was um, you know, on, the, uh, on the founding documents. Uh, and that didn't make it into the musical. Um, <laughs> no, well, there was a lot. He did a lot. So, so. <laughs> so they were, they, did they see this as an experiment, as, uh, education as a necessary beginning to the abolition process and a way of affecting public opinion? Absolutely. Um, they, because there was this idea that habits were so important and education was so important, they, they saw the school as basically a showcase uh, for racial equality, for racial potential. And the school, uh, for years, and this is actually how I came to learn about both of these men, uh, was through the records of what they would call examination days. And it was quite a scene um, once a year the students of the school would get up on stage and do anything from showcase their portraits of Benjamin Franklin, to give speeches, um, to greet luminaries who would come to visit, and the whole community would come out, including the press, including national press, uh, because this was such an important uh, data point, for lack of a better word, to, to, to this ongoing conversation about uh, 
the difference between the races? Was it valid or was it just a matter of, of you know, of oppression that we had this difference? And year after year, the kids in the school got up there knowing very well that everyone was looking to them to, to sort of see the future, the future of um, freedom and black intellect. What was the general attitude about the ability of African Americans to function in the society of the time? Right. That is uh, such a a difficult question in some ways to wrestle with at this time because it's so contradictory. So at this school, as we have this investment by the elite and by the press and by lots of people in, in this idea that, yes, with proper education, everyone uh, can be a citizen. Everyone can be a leader. And there was, you know, a, a big investment in that. At the same time, there's this failure uh, among the white elite, uh, among the nation at large, to imagine what that might actually look like. So at this school, as um, in the years before my two uh, subjects are attending the school, there's a shift. Uh, we see in the records, uh, for instance, there's this one absolutely um, star student. He's an A student. He's a prodigy. He does everything right. And then he graduates and he can't get a job because of prejudice. Uh, And the schoolmaster and the board start believing, along with many other uh, white reformers at the time, that this is just, that white prejudice is too baked in. It'll never change. That's one thing education can't change, is white prejudice and racism. Uh, so they come up with this idea that we need to, uh, freedom should happen, but then African Americans should go to Africa. They should start their own colony in Liberia and basically rewind history and start all over again. Or go to Mexico uh, or go to the Indies. Right. It, it develops. Right? Liberia is what they're thinking about in the 1820s, but yet later on it becomes South America. Abraham Lincoln suggests South America later on. It's this ongoing conversation. So they have this very mixed message of, you know, you can do anything, but you can't do it here. Now, weren't some members of the Manumission Society slave owners themselves? They were. And again, that is the contradiction of this era. Um, There is this idea that... You know, it's something we need. We can eventually just sort of work our way out of. Uh, that you know, it, it seems so striking to us that you could be an abolitionist and hold slaves, but it, it is just so baked into elite culture at this time. And this school that these uh, two men attended is one of the places the nation, black and white, is trying to imagine how do we move to the next stage. Now, the school was founded in 1787. Uh, Mm -hmm. As you pointed out, slavery wasn't abolished in New York State until 1827. Was the public generally in support of abolition? I would uh, not. I mean, abolition was a dirty word. Uh, Certainly by the time we get to the 1830s, when people start calling themselves abolitionists, uh, you are putting yourself in danger, even in the north, of getting your newspaper burnt down, Hmm. as happened to William uh, Lloyd Garrison, uh, to being considered an absolute radical. Uh, So this is, these students and the school is very much at the cusp. Um, There is this idea uh, also that, okay, the north is going to, you know, and even among the northeast, we have very different laws about when slavery is abolished, how strict they are going to be about, uh, you know, policing um, 
whether people are, can be sold out of the state or not. Um, so it's very much in flux, and very, there's very little interest this early in getting the South to uh, commit to abolition. The, manumission, the manumission society uh, worked in 1785 to have a New York state law enacted that would prohibit slaves from being imported into New York state, and then uh, another law provided that the children of enslaved mothers could be born, would be born free, and that is a really important part of this story. Absolutely, you, it, and that's the law in which you may be born into slavery, but you would, you would, as an adult, age into freedom. And again, that's this sort of idea that you need to be educated, right? It's that freedom is something that comes with maturity. So that childhood is this space of great potential, right? That we can sort of see the difference between growing into slavery or growing into freedom. And that's where um, Joseph Kuhn Smith and Henry Hallen Garnett are and sort of enter the scene. Well, they come in a, a little later. Uh, but uh, were uh, conditions for black people in New York City different than they were in the rest of the state and, and the surrounding areas? Well, uh, often in cities, things were uh, a little better. Uh, there was uh, slavery in New York City looked very different than it did in the South, uh, but it certainly had its own horrors. Uh, whereas, you know, when we think of slavery, we think of the plantation South and sort of these vast uh, labor camps. Mm. In New York City, because as then as now, right, there's less space, uh, people would not have room for um, lots of enslaved people. And what that meant is that families were often separated. There were lots of ads in which uh, if you were a, a, a woman who was pregnant, you were, they were putting you up for sale, which is the, very different from the South in which they would sort of see that as an asset because they didn't have room and they didn't want to lose your labor, but they often had one. So it was um, very difficult in that respect. But you had uh, organizations like the New York Manumission Society to which enslaved people uh, could go. Uh, you had a court system if you were suffering abuse, and there's some really interesting work done on court cases that enslaved people brought against their enslavers. So uh, in New York, like lots of other places, the city was had its own trials, but it also, because you just had um, more eyes, you had um, sort of a more of a framework to uh, at least get the word out if you were suffering a severe abuse. Were people who were no longer enslaved vulnerable to the slave catchers who worked under the, the Fugitive Slave Act? Absolutely, and that actually is what happens to uh, Henry Highland Garnett, uh, who was... One of uh, the two people we're going to be yes. talking about in a little bit. Yes. Um, so if I could uh, just give an example of what happened to him, happened to many people. Um, he was 14 years old. He comes home uh, from... He's sort of working a side job as a cabin boy, and he comes home to his apartment where his family has been living now for several years, and it's destroyed. Uh, well, he'd been born in slavery in Maryland, and then, yes. then and he ran away when he was nine years old, or the family came here? Yes, the whole family came. He said uh, it was his mother's idea. Uh, there was word that um, the ownership was going to change, and he, uh his mother says, We're, we are getting out of here. They get permission to go to a funeral, and they leave, and they never come back. And they wind up in New York City. Uh, so they are actually a fugitive family. So they're in real danger. 
um, and the slave catchers come to the family, and they, the, his father escapes by jumping over rooftops. His mother escapes out the back door. They do capture his sister. Uh, and eventually, uh, with the New York Manumission Society, they're able to uh, go up against Richard Riker, who, yes, is a relation to uh, Riker's Island, uh, who, who was sort of a, a judge in these cases. And he, um, they're able to prove that they weren't who the slave catchers said they were. But this happened all the time. People were taken off streets, off schools. Sometimes they were fugitives. Sometimes they had never been enslaved. It, as we, you know, if anyone who's seen uh, the film or read the book Twelve Years a Slave knows very well, it didn't really matter once they got you down south. I'm speaking with Anna Mae Duane on Leonard Lopet at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, listener-sponsored station. Um, her book, Education for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive, fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. It's published by NYU Press. Now, the school, although there were a number of schools, weren't there, but the school was located on Mulberry Street near Grand Street in what's now called Little Italy. What was the area like then, and what was the school like? Right. Um, so the area was considered at that point uh, the five points of New York City, uh, and it was a rough neighborhood. It was working class, uh, and you had this real mix of African Americans, of working class Irish, of other immigrant groups, all sort of mixing uh, together. Uh, the the schoolboys themselves, uh, when they were remembering their school days, would talk about how sometimes they had to fight their way through the streets to get to school. Um, the school itself, yes, there were six altogether uh, in this system, but um, the Mulberry Street School seems to be uh, the main school for several years, and certainly for the years uh, my subjects are attending it. The school itself is really remarkable. Um, for When... Uh, my subjects are attending it. They are teaching under what's called the Lancasterian system, which is a system by which the students really teach each other. Uh, there's, it's partially it's because of funding issues and partially because it's uh, sort of this trend that we shouldn't give so much power to the schoolmaster. We should sort of distribute the knowledge equally. Uh, and people describe it as almost all day spelling bees, uh, but students would compete against each other to be monitors. And if you got to be a monitor, you were in charge of teaching your classmates the lesson for the day. And you'd have one principal overseeing uh, the records tell us sometimes four or 500 students. And even uh, a few times in the records, uh, people come to visit the school and the principal is not there. And the school is running like a clock. Uh, because the students are so invested and it's so organized, and it's basically a student-run school, which I think is just sort of this remarkable moment uh, when we're having all these discussions about how to oversee education and, and sort of getting more strict uh, in discipline. Here's a place where the students are empowered to teach each other, and it seems to work incredibly well. And uh, this, the school we're talking about, or the schools we're talking about, were all boys, but you begin your book with the story of Margaret Odell. So a school for girls was created as well? No, actually, uh, girls and boys attended the Mulberry Street School. Ah. Um, from the beginning, girls, uh, which is sort of this remarkable 
the girls learned something different. They learned sewing rather than navigation. Uh, but there were boys and girls in both schools. Uh, I've traced a couple of the, like Margaret Odell uh, is a valedictorian in the school, and she gets to give a speech. She goes on to be a school teacher. Uh, you know, one of the issues in uh, studying this um, community is that the records are often scant. So especially for women, once you change your name, it's sometimes uh, difficult to uh, to trace them. But she's she stays an educator in her community. How did uh, parents even learn about the school? Um, and and how were students selected to attend? Did they have to pass some tests? That's uh, a great, great question. There's uh, The records are a little, it depends on who you listen to, about how uh, the students got in. Um, they said that they would send uh, uh Agents from the school is what they would call it. And often it was people from within the black community to come check out your house and to make sure you were of good morals. Hmm. Uh, but I also think that uh, agents uh, went out and recruited students. There's a lot of work about trying to get uh, the students to come. Uh, and I think it was this incredible opportunity that word of mouth just got out. It was, a, you know, it was the African free school. This is at a time when there aren't uh, public schools in New York City for everyone. Uh, these kids are getting an education that lots of white children in New York City aren't, don't have access to at this moment. So I think uh, if you were in New York City, if you were in this area, you knew about it and you made sure your kids uh, got in there. And do we know, do we know uh, about the quality of the teachers? Cornelius Davis was the first teacher and then there was Charles C. Andrews, uh, who uh, you write about, um, how, how were they hired? How were they selected? Were they all white? No. So uh, Charles C. Andrews and Cornelius Davis were white. There was a black principal, um, John Teesman, in between them. And so how they got hired, um, it's not entirely transparent. Uh, my guess is that uh, the New York Manumission Society, who, again, were sort of the elite of New York merchants and businessmen and politicians, uh, sort of used their networks to hire someone. Uh, and John Teesman is this interesting character. He's sort of before the time of uh, my students. but He was a black principal. Uh, and as far as I can tell, uh, he loses his job because he dares to participate in the, the uh, 4th of July celebration, which was always a sort of contentious conversation from the beginning. Um, people perhaps might know Frederick Douglass's uh, What is the Slave to the 4th of July speech, in which he's, you know, it's, it's this condemnation of the, this sort of celebration of freedom when you have millions of, the people, of people in the country who don't have access to this freedom. That is happening in the 1810s and 1820s. Uh, this sort of conversation around the July 4th. So the black community would come out, sometimes July 4th, sometimes July 5th, and have their own party. And it would get, you know, feisty and raucous sometimes and be sort of street celebrations. And the New York Manumission Society felt that this was not proper for uh, the principal of their school. And because he sort of claimed this public space and acted in a way that they, that didn't line up with what they thought the school should represent. He lost his job. And after that, you get Charles Andrews, who stays on for 20 years and is quite a character in his own right. 
Did the New York African Free School influence other schools for black students during the antebellum period or, or even after the Civil War? Absolutely. Um, one of the, I mean, so many of the students who come out of this school go on to be educators themselves. Uh, people who were in the cohort of my two students go on to be principals and college presidents. Uh, and they, in 1833, the school sort of moves into the public school system and largely under the black community's control. So it's this space in which uh, you, you see the black community uh, coming together and deciding what they want their schools to look like. Uh, so I think uh, it becomes this, it's not the only school for African-Americans at this time. There's certainly schools in Boston and Philadelphia, uh, but I think you'd be hard put to come up with a school that had a more famous alumni. Over time, didn't the school's white teachers and trustees remain uncertain about the future for, uh, for their students? How did they choose to prepare the children for what promised to be an uncertain future? Right, and this is uh, one of the climactic moments in this school's history. Uh, so as I mentioned, as once we get to the 1820s or so, uh, the school at Charles Andrews, the schoolmaster, uh, become convinced that, uh, and this is sort of the case of uh, many white reformers at the time, this is the, the reigning belief uh, that uh, colonization, that uh, African-Americans, especially educated African-Americans, will be much better off leaving the country entirely. And that kind of becomes the lessons in which that the school is conveying. To the way you students. write it is that in the 1820s, quote, black people had to either embrace a cheerful exile abroad or accept a living death in the United States. Yes. So it there was is... assumed that if they went to Nigeria, they were going to have a cheerful exile? Um, yes, there's this idea uh, that you can just start a second America. It's, it's really interesting the way it's phrased. Uh, it's, it's, um, they talk about it as an exodus, as Moses finding the promised land. Uh, it's also pitched as a second founding of America in which it gets to be your land and you won't have the memories of prejudice and uh, the memory of slavery and all this trauma. Uh, one of the ships that do go over is dubbed the second Mayflower, right? There's this really interesting uh, idea that we can have a do-over. <laughs> Historically, that's the solution. But it was a do-over um, in another way because uh, the Europeans came here and pretty much uh, uh, pushed the uh, indigenous people aside. And here we have these uh, freed slaves going to Africa and acting like colonizers. Right, and that is uh, one of the big issues that comes up. And this is sort of how it's sold, how it's being sold by the, from white reformers to the black community. Like, this, is, this worked for us. It can work for you. Uh, there's some lip service about uh, making treaties with the indigenous people, but, you know, it, it doesn't go very far. Uh, right, so there is this sort of sense we can just you know, uh, outsource <laughs> what we did here and we, you know, and everyone gets their own country and, and everyone's happy, never mind the indigenous people uh, that are living in both continents. Uh, but what happens 
so again, you sort of have this really contradictory message that these students are uh, immersed in every day. You, if you, you, you know, work really hard, show everyone your powerful intellect, but you can't stay. If you stay, you will never be able to get anywhere. And uh, in 1833, the parents, and I you know, believe it's largely the mothers, but the parents of the students of the New York African Free Schools get together and, and refuse this vision. They, they say this is not the lessons uh, we want our students to learn. This is not the future that we are subscribing to. Uh, and we will no longer send our kids to this school if you were going to keep preaching that this is their only choice. Because the school administration chose to align itself with the views of the American Colonization Society. And that leads us to the, the, the two main protagonists of your book, James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett, who were friends in school but um, represented the opposing views on this, among other things. Among other things. They're very different. They were friends all their lives, and they sort of toiled together. Uh, for liberation, but they take very different tacks. I, I mean, I couldn't help, you know, with all the coverage of the primaries uh, that we're listening to today, right, that in some ways they represent uh, a polarity that we may be very familiar with. James McCune Smith uh, is a good student. He's a builder. He believes in um, sort of working within the system to change hearts and minds. Henry Highland Garnett is a revolutionary. He is, from the moment he's a schoolboy, uh, and he never really leaves that path of being really innovative, of not accepting the choices that are given to him and coming up with new ideas of his own that you know, causes a, a lot of difficulty with uh, his friend James Bacune Smith and the larger black abolitionist community. Because he, be, but he is a, a militant black abolitionist. We'll get into some of the other things he was. Uh, the, both of them were formidable men of great achievement, and yet, uh, haven't they been largely forgotten by history? Why do you think that is? Uh, in fact, I, I was surprised when I found out how important a role John Jay played in all of this. Uh, after all, that's not the John Jay that I remember from my history books. Right, absolutely. I mean, so just to sort of give a sense of, of what they did, uh, James McCune Smith is the first African-American to earn an MD. Uh, he's involved in all uh, political action. Uh, Henry Highland Garnett is asked to give the speech uh, right before the House of Representatives, right after they've passed the 13th Amendment, um, uh, abolishing slavery. So they achieve incredible unprecedented success. And why we don't know about them, I, I mean, I've thought a lot about this. I think in some ways it's because this is a story we aren't quite sure how to tell yet about the antebellum era. But we, I mean, for a long time, there was this, we didn't want to talk about slavery at all in you know, high school history classes and beyond. Uh, and now we've sort of come to terms with Frederick Douglass's story and Harriet Tubman's story, this idea of uh, great suffering and great heroism, but slavery is something you sort of escape to or given. Uh, and these two men tell a different story of success and achievement and shaping freedom for their own community and in, sort of at, in the halls of Congress. And now, I just think we haven't figured out how to tell that story yet. James McCune Smith, as you said, uh, 
was the first African-American to earn an M.D. He was opposed to the American Colonization Society's idea about African exile, and yet he had to go study abroad, the University of Glasgow, because black people weren't allowed to attend colleges in the United States. And wasn't he the first black person to run a pharmacy? Um, there were some pharmacies, you know, the, the medical profession at this moment is still being professionalized, so there probably were some uh, pharmacies that weren't, weren't quite as an of, official, but he certainly was the one to, first one to earn an MD, and you're absolutely right uh, that he had to leave the country to do so. He applied for colleges in the U.S. and was denied. And uh, I don't have a lot uh, about how he felt in, in Glasgow. He was certainly nervous, uh, you can only imagine, uh, anyone entering uh, college for the first time, but to be in a whole different country, certainly the only person of color uh, in Scotland, uh, and he wows them, and he graduates quickly with honors. And I have to imagine that he must have felt at least a little temptation to stay where he was celebrated and accepted, uh, and he had earned this honor, uh, but he comes back and he stays in New York City for the rest of his life. He feels really strongly that that is uh, what he has been given this, these opportunities to do. Uh, that is what he should use his intellectual gifts for, to stay and fight for the rights of every black person and didn't, in the United States. Didn't he come to believe toward the end of his life that violence would be the only way to achieve progress for black people? That uh, opposing exile was the equivalent of surrender? Yes. Um, he, so he, he, this is the civil war in some ways. Right? Everyone eventually comes to this position. He, for most of his life, uh, believes in science as a way of of changing the story. Right? If we can just get the facts out, right? That prejudice and racism um, is just a misunderstanding, and if he can prove it through his own intellect, through uh, arguing with various uh, pseudosciences that are in the vogue at the time, he can change minds. But by the 1850s, um, right, and this is a, one of the ways he clashes with his friend Henry Helen Garnett. Henry Helen Garnett much earlier is saying, no, we need to fight. We're not, we can't wait around for people to change their minds. This is never going to happen unless we take action. Um, and so in the 1840s, they disagree on this. By the 1850s, James McCune Smith is like, you know what? We are going to have to stand and fight, and then we can have this conversation. On the other <laughs> hand. Then we'll change minds. Yeah, on the other hand, well, Garnett, who changed his mind a lot over the years. Oh, uh, gosh. Sea's <laughs> uh, re- exile is one of the possibilities. Uh, he was a lot of different things, an activist, a Presbyterian minister, a famous orator, a charismatic revolutionary who, as I said, who changed his mind a lot. He, yes. he, he based his drive for abolition on religion. But he also, would you describe him as an early black nationalist? Yeah, lots of people do. And I do, but he does talk about a black nation um, as the path forward. And yeah, it's so funny that you say he changes his mind a lot. It made him very <laughs> difficult to write about in some ways. Uh, be, and, but in some ways, that's emblematic of this era. People are absolutely against colonization until they aren't. They're absolutely against violence until they change their mind. Right? This is an era where everything is, it could have gone a lot of different ways. Um, and so he 
he's a minister, and he's an incredibly charismatic speaker. Uh, one of the things, so many things surprised me in my research, uh, but there are several stories of him uh, either giving sermons or speeches to thousands of New Yorkers, uh, black and white, in New York City. He gave a speech uh, which, in 1844 uh, under the title Address to the Slaves of the United States that was considered one of the most significant speeches for the abolitionist movement. Uh, what was he saying? Um, actually, if, if, if it's okay, I'd like to just read a couple of sentences because I of cannot course. paraphrase his eloquence. Uh, I think it, it's worth um, uh, just letting it uh, speak for itself. So he says, Brethren, arise, arise, strike for your lives and liberties. Now is the day and the hour. Let every slave in the land do this, and the days of slavery are numbered. You cannot be more oppressed than you have been. You cannot suffer greater cruelties than you have already. Rather die free men than live to be slaves. Remember that you are four millions. And he, the, this speech I describe it as a black hole in the middle of this uh, convention uh, because everything in the convention minutes revolve around the speech, but the speech isn't in it because they find it too inflammatory to publish. Mm. Uh, it doesn't get published for another five years. Uh, there's uh, in the minutes we know that he, everyone is struck dumb, that people are crying. Uh, Frederick Douglass is in the audience, uh, a young man. He has not written his famous autobiography yet, and this is too much for Frederick Douglass and most, at least half the people in the convention. They feel that this is too radical. Uh, they worry that this is going to cause bloodshed, and they vote not to publish it at that time. Smith also uh, uh, strongly opposed Garnett's views on African colonization. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, where a listener-sponsored non-commercial radio. Oh, freedom. Oh, freedom. Golden Gospel Singers, Oh Freedom. Uh, we are talking with Anna Maydwain, uh, author of uh, Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of, of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation, published by NYU Press. And Anna May, uh, if you'd be so kind to, to just give us a few moments uh, to deal with some other business here. Uh, of course. Because... This is now the second day of WBAI's Winter Fun Drive, and joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, uh, who has uh, some interesting information. Uh, and then we're going to get back to you and talk about these gentlemen because it's such a fascinating story. Uh, we're also, Jesse, aren't we also offering uh, the book, her book, to listeners who become members? Yes, but before we get into all that, Leonard, I just wanted to let our listeners know that today's show 
with um, the great animated Dwayne is just the first of a series of programs we're going to be doing this month in celebration of Black History Month. So keep tuning in for those shows. Getting back to today, yes, Leonard, you are correct. Today is the second day of our winter fun drive. And actually, I'm delighted to announce that a couple listeners have already stepped up. We want to send a special thanks to Natasha from Los Angeles and Claire from Flushing, who both became BAI buddies in the name of Leonard Lopate at large during the course of this program you too can become a BAI buddy by going to five uh, by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to the website give to wbai.org that's give then the number 2 wbai.org and everyone who donates today that is Leonard everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy today for a monthly contribution of $10 or more will receive a copy of the book you've been discussing Educated for Freedom by Anna Mae Duane sent to you as our way of saying thanks. Now it is interesting that one of the people who became a buddy is in Los Angeles and we should point out that a fair number of our listeners live outside of the New York broadcast area. They listen on their computers, on their phones, uh, they listen to podcasts. Uh, you don't have to be hearing the show right at the moment that we're broadcasting to become a buddy. You can become a buddy or, or a member of WBAI. You don't have to become a buddy either, but you can do it any time. Uh, the buddies are sustaining members. Uh, we ask you to consider $10 a month uh, for as long as you wish to do that or $15 or 20 or whatever you're comfortable with. But if you don't want to do it that way, if you just want to send uh, to give us a lump sum, uh, we're very grateful for any show of support that you give us. And again, the number is 516-620-3602 or go to our donation site, www.give2wbai.org. That's give and then the number 2wbai.org. You can also just go to our regular website, wbai.org. Right. We are powered by small donors here, to put it in election terms. Because as we... we don't take money from foundations. We don't take ads like a lot of public radio stations do. We rely 100% on the largesse, the support of our listeners. Exactly. And like Leonard said, you if, if becoming a buddy doesn't sound like the right fit for you, any amount that you're able to contribute is appreciated by all of us at the show and at the station. Uh, it is what allows us to keep going. You know, when we see things like when we get uh, buddies uh, like Natasha from Los Angeles, it really makes our day. Obviously, we will always love our New York audience. It keeps us alive. But the fact that this show is making it outside of the New York area and certainly with in the era of podcasting, the fact that these shows have a bit of a longer shelf life, we do our best to contribute to consider that as we bring you these deep dives on one topic five days a week. Uh, we want to make sure that this is something that can entertain people, uh, not just while it's live, but that you can tune into whenever and still get something. You out. can listen to it next year. Exactly. Evergreen is what they call them in the business. Yes. But uh, the important thing is uh, for us to be able 
to continue broadcasting. And we have had some problems uh, in recent times where we, a, a group actually, there was a coup and the station went off the air for about a month. Uh, well, a nonviolent coup, we should say that. When you, when you say coup, I, I think well, a lot of people- they came in and they broke things and cut wires and did all sorts of things that right. uh, I would consider slightly violent. Uh, and we want to avoid that happening again. We don't want to give anybody an excuse to, to come in and uh, try to take over this station. Uh, the excuse they give is that we sometimes don't have all the money that we should have. Well, that it, that really changing that is up to you, our listeners. Again, the number two, uh, 516-620-3602 or give to WBAI.org. That's give the number two WBAI.org. And we hope that you will become a member, whether a sustaining member or a donor of whatever amount you feel comfortable with in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And Leonard, I'm so glad that you brought up the coup or the whatever you want to call it, the takeover that happened at the station back in October by a faction of the Pacifica uh, network where, uh, you know, we were waiting for a court decision. And even after the court decision in our favor, we were waiting for that decision to be uh, abided by, by, by the, the, the rogue faction. We were off the air for a month. So the main reason that Leonard and I wanted to bring this up today is to just let our regular listeners know we realize that it may seem like we've been in perpetual fun drive mode for the last few months. The reason for that is that coup that we've just been mentioning happened in the middle of our fall fun drive, our October fun drive. So, so, so we had to cut it short. It was cut short. We weren't on the air. Yeah, I'd say if you're if you no longer have a broadcast <laughs> system, you you don't yeah. really have an option to continue continue the drive, no matter how devoted our listeners are. So basically, what we're doing now, we are still working financially to catch up. To, to basically losing half a fun drive and all of the damage that, that grew out of that takeover. But this fun drive now, this November drive, is the normal time that it... I, I'm so, Yeah, I'm sorry, this February drive, November, uh, uh, we were still shut down. This February drive is our normally scheduled winter fun drive, so we're asking you to help us get back on track, and you can do that by calling 516-620-3602 or going to give to WBAI.org. You can become a BAI buddy for $10 or more a month and get a copy of the book, Educated for Freedom, that we've been discussing today, or should I say Leonard and Anime Duane have been discussing today, or if you want to donate at any level, we appreciate it. And uh, did you have something else you wanted to add? I just want to get back to my guest because we don't I have a lot of time. I want you to get back to that guest. And Leonard, we have so, so much more to talk about. It's a fascinating story. I'm going to let you go. And, and just one last time, 516-620-3602. Give to WBAI.org. Please make that donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thanks to all of you for listening and contributing. And we're back with Anime Dwayne. Her book, Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. It's published by NYU Press. Um, as, as Lincoln promoted the ideas of emancipation and uh, that freedom for black people was within reach, both Smith and Garnett could still see that true freedom would be hindered by white prejudice. And wasn't 
Garnett angered when the fine print of Lincoln's District of Columbia Emancipation Act revealed that the president was something of a colonizer, colonizing support as well? Right, and this is one of the um, moments that, again, I was surprised in my own research. Uh, yes, there were, first, there was a pre-emancipation proclamation that just uh, liberated people within D.C., Washington, D.C., and then we had the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, which we all know about. Uh, and on both cases, Lincoln is making outreach to the black community, members of the black community, saying, okay, you know, this is going to go through, but you're, you're never going to flourish here. The same lesson that was taught at the New York African Free Schools. And so, you know, can we get you on board? He suggested South America, though he was open to other possibilities. Um, and Garnett is at this moment, right, again, he's changing his mind again. He's come back. Uh, he's recruiting soldiers for the Civil War. He and Frederick Douglass are toe-in-toe -toe, uh, in churches recruiting black soldiers. Uh, but when he hears uh, that Lincoln is offering this money, he's also thinking, uh, you know, maybe that's not such a bad idea. And actually, Frederick Douglass's own son uh, at first is thinking about taking uh, Lincoln up on his offer. It doesn't happen. Uh, and Frederick Douglass writes about the heartbreak that it causes him, that it's so precarious, the future is so uncertain, uh, that even Frederick Douglass's own son and this Henry Helen Garnett, a radical, are not sure whether there's going to be a future for them in this country, even with the Civil War coming to an end. Well, you're right that one thing that the Civil War clarified for many black abolitionists was the distinction between anti-slavery activists and advocates for racial equality. Right. The, Two different things. They are not the same thing at all. Um, and but this is one of the places where I think, you know, the part of the uh, title that says they, they changed the nation, I think these two men and their cohort really did change the nation. Because, uh, without this pushback from the black community, Garnett, of course, goes back and forth, but from people like Douglas and uh, James McCune Smith, uh, there's a very good chance that colonization might have happened. It seems kind of like a harebrained scheme uh, to us now, uh, but because there was this division, because there were white reformers who thought slavery was wrong, but also couldn't imagine an America in which white and black people lived on equal terms, and colonization was their sort of escape valve. So there would, be a, there would just be separate places for black people, the separation of the races? Yes, they, they could not imagine a world in which black and white people lived equally. And so... Some people uh, still I mean, can't. I know. I know. I mean, it is this sort of uh, tragic legacy that we still have this um, divide, uh, that, that this, this failure of imagination. years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, now, didn't we, the uh, 1863 draft riots have personal impacts on, on both Smith and Garnett? Right, and, and speaking of sort of... The, tragic legacies. This is a, um, one that uh, it's sort of this moment of white backlash when, as we sort of see black freedom coming on the horizon and white violence. And again, it's not as well known as you think it might be. It's this piece of New York City history, which is uh, incredibly tragic. Uh, and yes, both men are um, targeted by it and heartbroken by the violence. Uh, so what happened, I, I mentioned that James, I'm sorry, uh, Henry Helen Garnett, Frederick Douglass, and lots of other people are recruiting black soldiers to fight in the Civil War. Uh, but the problem was in New York City, the governor of New York at that time, uh, again, this sort of division would not allow 
black soldiers to fight in a New York regiment, did not want armed black men in the state. So if you wanted to uh, fight, you had to go to Massachusetts. And what this meant was that New York had uh, to make up their um, quotient of soldiers and that they couldn't draw from the black community who wanted to fight and therefore had to go to working-class white men, right? Because if you were rich, you could buy your way out of it. And what happens one summer day as they're starting to draw the draft numbers, um, there's this outbreak of violence in which uh, it's just uh, a three-day-long massacre, an attack on black communities. Uh, They attack uh, the Colored Orphan Asylum, which is this incredible institution that James McCune Smith uh, worked with for most of his life. It's, It's called an orphan asylum, but it was really sort of this incredible school. It was on... Uh, Fifth Avenue on 42nd Street, not far from where the New York Public Library is now. It had running water. It had a swimming pool. It was this incredible uh, sort of bastion of, you know, the next generation. Uh, And the mob attacks it and burns it to the ground. They come knocking on Henry Helen Garnett's door. Uh, He escapes with his life, uh, but out of sheer luck. And dozens, if not hundreds, of black people are killed in the streets. Uh, It is this incredibly shameful and incredibly violent uh, interlude in, in New York's sort of Civil War history. But Garnett was already considered an important figure. In 1865, after Lincoln submitted the, the 13th Amendment that officially abolished slavery for ratification, wasn't Garnett asked to address Congress, the first black man to address that body? Yes. Uh, it's this incredible honor. What was his uh, speech? And I, I can't help but think... Uh, he especially was honored because he was asked as the most important black orator in order in America, not Frederick Douglass, because they had a lifelong rivalry. So um, I'm sure he was quite pleased with that. Yeah, it was this incredible moment. Uh, and what I find uh, interesting, so even as these two men sort of had conflict over their lives about what freedom should mean, uh, when it's time to publish this speech, uh, Henry Helen Garnett reaches out to his old friend James McCune Smith, and in some ways, this is one of the most important historical documents we have of the two men working together. So they're, they're, the rift between them had finally healed. Uh, Smith died in 1865, but Garnett lived another 17 years through the first presidential impeachment, Reconstruction, and the emergence of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, now, he was the president of Avery College in Pittsburgh for a time, but did he remain active in politics? Right. He um, remains uh, active in education. Uh, one of the ways I think that he uh, adopts or reconciles with his friend James McCune Smith's ideas is that uh, as the Civil War is ending, he has himself created uh, what he calls the African Civilization Society. And it's, uh, he originally designed it as a way to create funds for people to emigrate to Africa, but after the Civil War, he uses that funding to uh, educate African Americans in the South. He marries uh, a principal of the New York African Free Schools, a female principal, uh, later on after his wife dies. Um, so he is uh, very active in sort of these conversations, but he's also uh, falls out of um, for various reasons. He seems to have difficulty raising funds. He is a fiery personality, so he uh, sometimes has trouble with his employers. Uh, as a minister, he likes to travel, and the church kind of wants him to stay home. This is an ongoing issue. Uh, so he doesn't achieve 
Um, but as Frederick Douglass's star continues to rise, Henry Highland Garnett uh, kind of remains in the trenches and uh, is kind of sad about it at the end of his life. It feels that he hasn't been remembered. Well, he was named U.S. ambassador to Liberia, and didn't he die of malaria shortly after he began serving there? Yes, and this is, so in some ways, this is the question that he'd had all his life about whether it was he should stay in the United States or go to Liberia. Um, and this journey itself is this divided moment for him, right? Because, again, he is uh, uh, an African-American man in Reconstruction being appointed by the U.S. government as an ambassador. This is no small feat. Earlier on, uh, when he was one of the first black men to, be, uh, to earn a passport, right, when, right after um, there had been Supreme Court cases saying that black men could not be citizens. He insists on being, uh, getting a passport as a black man. So even as he's sort of um, doubling down on his citizenship and his American status, he uses it to leave, to go to Liberia. And um, he, I think he knew he was dying at that point. His daughter, his beloved daughter, was over there as a missionary, uh, and it was his wish to, to uh, go to Africa um, what, you know, before he died, and he did die shortly after. Now, how did uh, the, uh, the, 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 the matter of children and race in early America become a focus of your work? I mean, you've written, right. uh, you also wrote Educated, uh, I mean, Educated for Freedom encompasses the writings of children as well. I mean, that's actually how this started. I mean, in some ways, it's why I'm, I'm a historian of childhood, so I sort of came with that framework. Uh, and I first discovered both of these men through these school records. Uh, but I also realized, and when I decided to write this biography, I thought, okay, I'll just leave their childhood. I'll just have one chapter on it. Uh, but I realized, and I think this is true of uh, certainly in the 19th century, it's important to remember that most of the population was young. Uh, black and white. It was a young country. We had the majority of the population was under 21 uh, through the 18th and most of the 19th century. Uh, and I think that uh, as the more I, I learned about these men, I realized that it's a fallacy to think, uh, wait, to go back to uh, Hamilton, right, this idea that uh, Hamilton gets called to be the Secretary of State and the wife is just asking him to stay home and it's, he, he sort of leaves the home and goes off and does important things. For both of these men, and I think for many of the people we consider history makers, what happened uh, in their homes with their children, with their wives and their mothers, absolutely shaped what they fought for and what their possibilities were. Uh, the school itself, as I mentioned, right, children were put on stage and newspaper men came and talked about the future of the black race based on what they saw there. Now, we have Childhood. no time. We're out of time. Oh. But how... Uh, when did the schools close? Um, they changed hands in 1833, and then they get absorbed into the New York public school system. And so they exist in one form or another for the next 30 or 40 years, and then eventually they're just absorbed into the public school system. Anna, Anna May Duane, D-U-A-N-E, her book, Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation, published by NYU Press. It's been a great pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Leonard. 
And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Kate Guan Allison, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopez at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopezAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. And we invite you to leave your comments in any of those places. We hope you'll join us tomorrow when H. Keith Melton, actually, when uh, just and Robert Wallace will discuss their celebrated guidebook, Spy Sites of New York City, a guide to the region's secret history. We'll see you then. And a reminder that we're in the second day of WBAI's Winter Pledge Drive. We're hoping that you'll support this show and the station especially by becoming a BAI buddy. You could do that by going to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602. A BAI buddy for $10 a month or $15 a month or $20 a month or whatever uh, you feel comfortable with. It could be $100 a month if you... In fact, Michael Bloomberg, if you're listening, save a couple of bucks on those ads and uh, support WBAI. Everyone who becomes a BAI buddy uh, at whatever level, whether it's $10 or more, uh, will receive a copy of the book that we've just been talking about, Anna Mae Duane's Educated for Freedom. So uh, when you call or go to our website, Tell them that you would like a copy of Educated for Freedom, which uh, really is a, a fabulous book. Um, we hope that you will do that. Again, the number 516-620-3602 or give to WBAI.org. Ensure that WBAI will be here in the future, the near future and the far future. It's been 60 years so far, and I see no reason why we can't do another 60 years. Thanks so much.